Good morning. Uh, this morning's Bible reading comes from Acts chapter 9, verse 32 through 10, verse 33. Just give you a moment to find it uh, in your devices. As Peter travelled about the country, he went to visit, visit the Lord's people who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Ananias, who was paralysed and had been bedridden for eight years. Ananias, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you, get up and roll up your mat. Immediately Ananias got up. All those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. In Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, in Greek, her name is Dorcas. She was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and prayed. Turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. She, went, she, she opened her eyes and seeing Peter, she sat up. He took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. Then, then he called her. Then he called for the believers, especially the widows, and presented her to them alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many people believed in the Lord. Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who was called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and he sent them to Joppa. Peter's vision. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. 
the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men from Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to the house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objections. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. This is the word of the Lord. Great, let's pray. Father in heaven, please open our eyes to see what you have to say to us. We're so excited uh, to come under the precious word of God and we pray, therefore, with expectant hearts that you'd speak to us. Amen. So here's this great gathering, right? What, what is Peter going to say? Massive opportunity. Can you imagine? Cornelius has gathered all his relatives, all his friends 
to hear the message that Peter brings and they're waiting for it. They're on the edge of their seats. They're hanging on what is going to come out of Peter's mouth. Here's his great moment. And then what does Peter say? He says, well, why have you sent for me? Good one. He's an apostle. He was there when the great commission was handed out to him by Jesus to take the gospel to the nations, right? And now he's standing at Cornelius's door, this non-Jewish guy. And the first thing he says is, well, you know, it's against our law for a Jew like me to associate like a gent with a Gentile like you or to visit people like you. Good one. Okay, if you've ever felt that you've missed an opportunity, take heart from Peter. He's so flawed. <laughs> Do you remember when um, he swore on the night before Jesus died that he would go to death for Jesus and then promptly denied him three times that he knew him? Here in this chapter, he objects again three times to eating the meal God told him to eat. Surely not Lord. As if you know, he knows what's best. <laughs> what's to tell God what's what. Um, he's too proper to eat anything so unclean. Three times. He's not quick on the uptake, Peter, is he? Right? And that's why this story is so heartening, so good for us, because we, like Peter, we're not quick on the uptake. We've all got beliefs that are very deep, which the gospel, when the gospel confronts them, it takes time and often it will take repetition and an explicit challenge from God for us to let go of them. For example, you know, you, you get converted, come to church, and it, the penny doesn't drop. That church, the church isn't all about you, you know, and what you can get out of it. It takes a while, actually, to realize, oh, church is about being in the family of God and me serving other people with the gifts that Jesus has given me. And, you know, we're, we're slow on the uptake because we're inherently sinful and because from the time we've been, you know, first popped out into the world, basically, we, we've been um, just raised in this environment, consumer culture, individualistic culture, and yet it takes time to realise, actually, when Christ saves me, I'm part of a body and it's not all about me and what I can get out of it, it's about us serving together. It takes time, doesn't it? Peter's issue here, of course, is whether the news of salvation in Jesus should go out to the Gentiles at all. That's not our issue. <laughs> but one issue that is ours, that's raised in this story, is the question whether people need to consciously confess the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. This is a question that keeps coming up in the book of Acts. God has sent the world a saviour and people are called to believe in him. Well, what about people who don't or haven't had the chance, okay? This is an issue for all of us, for all of us, whether we're Christians or just checking things out. Because we all know respectable people, right? We know sincere people. We know people who don't necessarily call Jesus Lord, but they don't seem that bad. Surely God's going to accept them, isn't he? Surely he's not going to consign people to eternal punishment just because they don't know the name of Jesus, or if they do, because they don't happen to confess him as Lord, right? Well, that's a question. Christians are those who have accepted that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. But the flip side of that good news 
is the question of what happens to those who don't call on the name of the Lord? What happens to them? This is such a big question, the consequences are so huge that it's easy for us just to conveniently ignore it. We hope that God will be acceptable of the respectable and, and sincere people we know. People like Cornelius. Cornelius, he is the classic test case. He's introduced at the start of chapter 10. He is a centurion, which means he's got status and responsibility. He's of the Italian regiment, which means he's a Gentile, right? And yet for a Gentile, he's a very good guy. He and his family are God-fearers. They give generously to Jewish people. Imagine that, a Roman soldier doing that. He prays to God regularly and at the regular Jewish times of prayer. Surely he's acceptable to God. I mean, if anyone's going to be acceptable to God, surely this man is. He's the perfect test case of someone who's respectable but doesn't yet confess Jesus as Lord. He's generous, he's sincere, he's God-fearing. And, just to add to it, it reads in the passage like God's fine with him. Acts chapter 10, verse 34, Peter says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what it, what's right. This is before he shares the news of Jesus. So it sounds from that like God accepts people like Cornelius before they've become Christians. Well then, if God accepts Cornelius, why would he then send Peter to him to explain to him a message of salvation? Doesn't the fact that God sends someone to him with the message of salvation imply that Cornelius wasn't saved before hearing about Jesus? And if that's true, then in what sense can we say that Cornelius was really acceptable to God from verse 34? You see how this passage raises this issue. Does God require people to, be conscious, to consciously confess the name of Jesus for them to be saved? That's the question. Now we're going to leave aside the issue of what happens to infants uh, who die or what happens to the mentally handicapped for a moment, but for those who are mentally capable, does God, people, does God require people to consciously confess the name of Jesus, the Savior who God sent, for them to be saved? Now that question keeps coming up in Acts as the gospel reaches a new frontier and we'll be raising this because we must grapple with it. In a few weeks we're going to see what happens when the gospel reaches complete pagan idolaters who know nothing of God. But today we see what happens when the gospel first edges over the borders of Judaism into Gentile territory, albeit a, a God-fearing and devout Gentile such as Cornelius but he's still Gentile, okay? Now, this is an important story. It's not as important as last week's, the conversion of Saul, but it comes in second. Both last week and this week's stories involve God sending two visions to two people, bringing people sovereignly together to meet. Ananias to Saul, Peter to Cornelius. Both stories are important in the plan that Jesus set down for the gospel to, to go out from Jerusalem to the nations. So to, for that to happen, how's that gonna happen? Well, Jesus converts Saul and sends him out as the apostle to the Gentiles. But as Saul's just been cleared for action, right, by the church, that was last week, 
and we expect now the focus to be on him, suddenly it's like the spotlight swings back and focuses in on Peter, and we think, well, why has that happened? And the reason why that has happened is because for the Jewish church, it's one thing to agree in theory that Gentile people should be reached, but in practice, the activity of that offends their Jewish scruples. Yes, sure, Saul's been sent to the Gentiles, but before that mission can even start, the issue of Jewish acceptance of Gentile Christians needs to be addressed. And that's why the spotlight is now swinging back to Peter and to his meeting with Cornelius. This story is about God opening Peter's eyes and then God opening the church's eyes to those whom God accepts and then by extension, God opening our eyes to those whom God accepts. Firstly, God opens Peter's eyes. Now in chapter nine, we're introduced to Peter with his eyes half open. <laughs> I say that because he, he half understands what Jesus being Lord of, uh, the Lord of glory means. He, he sees enough to begin moving out from Jerusalem and he sees enough to begin performing miracles in Jesus' name. And so he goes to Lydda. There may be a map there, I'm not sure. Is there a map? No, there isn't, don't worry. Lydda is about 50 kilometers west of Jerusalem. He meets a paralytic named Aeneas and tells him that Jesus Christ is healing him and then Peter says to him, rise up. Just as Jesus rose from the dead, in Jesus' name, Peter commands Aeneas, rise up from your mat and Aeneas rises up. Peter now moves west from Lydda to the largely Gentile port of Joppa, which today is better known as Tel Aviv, the capital of Israel. Peter confronts this heart-rending scene of a believer named Tabitha, famous for her good works, but she's died. In the way the story is told, our heart goes out to her, the mourners have our sympathies. She's a wonderful woman. But notice here again, here is a deserving, respectable person, but she's Jewish, right? But what does Peter do? Well, he utters the same command he gives to Aeneas. He says, rise up. She rises up to Aeneas. Peter says, rise up. He rises up to Tabitha. Rise up. She rises up. And now in chapter 10, verse 13, in his vision, the Lord says to Peter, rise up. Rise up and eat. Peter says, surely not. Okay, he's not doing the right thing. <laughs> His eyes are only half open. His Jewish scruples are blinding him. If only he could see. Aeneas rose up, everyone in the area turned to the Lord. Tabitha rose up, many people believed in the Lord. If only Peter would rise up too, but he doesn't. Oh no, I've never done anything like that requires a direct intervention from God to change him, to sovereignly bring him together with a searching Gentile, right? In the first vision, God calls for Cornelius to send for Peter. Cornelius, what is it, Lord? God's heard your prayers and accepted your gifts to the poor as an offering to him, so here's some specific instructions which won't make any sense to you yet. Some men uh, send some men to bring back from Joppa a man named Simon, who is called Peter. And here's the address. Now, Cornelius is a centurion. He's had orders before, which he doesn't really know the rhyme or reason from, but he does them. So he sends off the men, 
and they go off to Joppa to search for Peter. In the next scene, just as Cornelius' servants are arriving outside the front of where Peter is staying, Peter is upstairs going into a trance, praying. It's lunchtime, Peter is feeling peckish, but there are no pickled peppers to pick a pecker of, so he calls for lunch, he falls into a trance, he sees a large sheet being led down by its corners. In it are all the unclean, non-kosher things that Jews would never, ever touch. And that's where he hears the voice say, rise up, Peter, kill and eat. Well, Peter doesn't. He's got his scruples. He says, surely not, Lord. He rebukes God. Isn't that kind of scary but funny but terrifying at the same time? He says, I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. And then he hears his scruples being challenged. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times he's told, rise up and eat. Three times he objects. Three times he hears the correction. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Well, he's turning this over in his mind. And at that very moment, the men, of course, sent by Cornelius, arrive at the front gate. Peter's on his roof, but the Spirit of God tells him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Rise up, there it is again. Go downstairs, don't hesitate to go with them because I've sent them. Well, his Jewish scruples would normally suggest otherwise, but his eyes are opening. <laughs> so he goes, this time he's obedient to the Spirit of God. He's being challenged, right? So after two days of traveling with these Gentile people, Peter arrives at Cornelius's. Now, he doesn't yet get God's full acceptance of Gentiles, so he drops his Jewish clangers. Why am I here? And Jews don't normally associate with Gentiles. But then Cornelius explains his vision, and when Cornelius and with his family and friends say, look, I did what I was told, I sent for you immediately, now we're just here, we are waiting to hear what the Lord has commanded you to tell us, and then all of a sudden, Peter gets it. He, a Jew, can now accept Cornelius a Gentile because God has accepted Gentiles. He says, I now realize, literally, I am opened. His eyes, his mind have been opened. I'm opened and I see how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from every nation who fear him and do what's right. And then that prompts, that gives Peter all the full permission now to share the gospel with them. He says, you know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is, here it is, Lord of all, right? Yes, yes, the gospel has had Jewish beginnings and concerned what happened within Judea. It was first preached to Jewish people, but now Peter gets it. This really is good news for everyone, you know, all of it his anointing of Jesus with the Holy Spirit, the miracles in Judea, his crucifixion, he goes through it all, the resurrection appearances to those chosen to be witnesses after he's risen from the dead. This is, was news for the Jews, yes, but not just for the Jews, it's for all the world because when Jesus died on the cross, he died for the sins of all the world, not just for Jewish people. It's for all the world because when Jesus rose to life again, he rose as the savior of all who would believe, not just Jewish people who believe. 
And so we hear Peter's new understanding in verse 43. All the Jewish prophets testify about Jesus that everyone, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And then as Peter is speaking, you know, if there's any doubt left in his mind about God accepting Gentiles, it's obliterated completely when the Holy Spirit, when God sends his Holy Spirit on all those who are gathered. It's kind of a mini Pentecost event. Okay, what, well, what else can Peter conclude except to say, can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They've received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And so he orders they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And yes, God saved Cornelius. But what's this story really about? The story is about God opening Peter's eyes. That's what it's really about. And just as well, because by chapter 11, the news of the Gentiles receiving the word of God has now spread to the apostles and other Jewish believers. And now comes the criticism, right? You went into the house of an uncircumcised person and you ate with them. And you're a Jew. (laughs) They, like Peter before, just don't get it. Their eyes are closed. How are the eyes of the church now going to be opened? Well, through the telling of Peter's story of what happened with him and Cornelius. Peter recounts the story and then concludes, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? Who indeed? No one can argue with that. And so their objections vanish and they praise God and then they say, so God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. It's through the retelling of this story that God opens the church's eyes. And it's through the retelling of the story that God bids them to rise up beyond their own scruples of who's acceptable and who's not acceptable to God. So how might God open our eyes through this story? How might God cause us to rise up in Jesus' name and be an effective witness for him? Well, let me suggest two ways. Firstly, it's worthwhile asking the question, who's in our sheet? Who is it that we automatically think is too unclean for inclusion within the people of God? Now, we might say no one. Well, that's what Peter would have said. You know, in principle, in theory, this was true, but in practice, it was very different. You know, practically, if you're in the same room as people, who are the people that you'd naturally pull away from and perhaps communicate non-verbally your disapproval if they were in close proximity to you? Who are the people you think might be beneath you sharing the news of Jesus with? Smelly people? Homeless people? People with bad language? People with an awful past? People who've been in prison? Really loud people who just laugh and snort and do things just, please calm down. 11 years ago, Craig Broman uh, preached on this very passage at the 5 p.m gathering in the city where I was. And I remember Craig preaching and me sitting there and asking exactly this question, who is in your sheet? And as he was asking it, between my line of sight where I was sitting and Craig was a homeless person 
who, with intellectual difficulties, in a dirty, smelly singlet top, who had his pants pulled up to sort of under his armpits. And he was sitting side on to me with this very long finger right up his nose at the exact moment that Craig asked me, who's in your sheet? Well, I'll tell you what, I think my scruples were being challenged at that moment. <laughs> okay, and we can say, well, hang on. I mean, sure he was dirty, sure he lacked social graces, sure he was intellectually disabled, but here is a man made by God who bears the image of God. He is someone who's precious to God because Jesus died for this man, for all his sins. Um, and in God's eyes, he, I don't know what was going on in his heart, he may well have been acceptable to God. We need to hear God's word to Peter to rise above our restrictive scruples. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Don't do it. So which sort of person do you see as dirty and unfitting? Perhaps being here. You know, is it a nationality? Is it Iranians? Is it Taiwanese? Is it Americans? Is it Chinese people? Is it, the Jap is it Aboriginal people? Or maybe it's not a nationality. What about transgender people? What about same-sex attracted people? What about old people? Or the very young? Disabled people who can't speak? What about the poor who can't afford a wash? or the very rich? Is it, what about people with mental illnesses? Or people with learning difficulties, or the illiterate? Which one of those do you naturally distance yourself from? Because you, there will be, we all have our scruples. Which people group do you find it most difficult to be near? Well, you need to hear the word of God. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. If God has pronounced these people acceptable because Christ died on the cross for all their sins and he rose to life as the savior of all who believe, who are we to erect barriers when God has pulled them down? So could you welcome people like that into our church here? Could you have them in your home? Could you invite them to your home group? Could you say, I'd love to catch up with you and actually arrange to do it? Could you be kind to them? Or if they came, would you ignore them and just leave the welcoming of them up to someone else? Or would you even be more rude and reject them because they might change the look of our church? God is saying to us, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. So this is a challenge, isn't it? If our own scruples are stopping us accepting those whom God has accepted, we need to pray that God would open our eyes and keep opening our eyes because it's not just Peter who's slow in the uptake, is it? Well, there's one application. The flip side of that is to wrongly think that 
Just because someone seems respectable, then God has automatically accepted them. And that, of course, is not true at all. And that's an error I think we are particularly prone to. So I want you to think of the respectable people whom you know, the people perhaps in your street, people next door to you, uh, people whom you work with, um, people who you like going out to dinner with, but who do not confess Jesus as Lord. Is it the case in your heart of hearts that you really deep down think they must be okay with God? God will accept someone like this. I want you to come back to Cornelius. When Peter visited Cornelius, the classic test case, he stated, now he realized that God accepted people from every nation who feared God and did what was right. Does that mean that Cornelius was saved? I mean, he's so respectable, he's generous to the Jewish poor, he prayed to the Jewish God. You can't get a more respectable non-Jew than that. Surely he's acceptable to God. If that's the case, why does God send Peter to Cornelius? Now, you might say, well, um, I think he was saved beforehand, but maybe God sent Peter to Cornelius to give him a fuller understanding of his salvation, to, to give him focus of his prayers. Now he can pray in Jesus' name, to give him the name of the one he knew had saved him already. Well, if that was true, why did the angel tell Cornelius that Peter would bring them a message through which he and his household could be saved. <laughs> Chapter 11, verse 14. Why did Peter himself tell Cornelius of the forgiveness of sins which were now available through the name of Jesus? You see, those statements are meaningless unless we say, or even though Cornelius feared God, even though he was eminently respectable, he was sincere, he was not saved by God. So, then in what sense can we say he was acceptable in verse 34? Peter's not making a statement about whether Cornelius is forgiven or not. He's making a statement about who he now realizes the gospel should go to. He's realized the gospel of salvation um, is not just for God-fearing Jews only, but for God-fearing people from every nation. God-fearing Gentiles are entitled to hear of their savior just as much as God-fearing Jews. But that didn't mean that Cornelius didn't need the gospel. We need to recapture the belief upon which the modern missionary movement was founded, that those without Christ are lost. It was that catch cry phrase which sent hundreds and hundreds of missionaries out from England in the 1800s when the modern missionary era began. It was that conviction that were held by top men from Cambridge and Oxford, the cream of British society. And they, when they went out to the northern um, uh, countries in Africa, they packed their coffins with them because they knew that they'd only last a few months before the diseases of, of, that, of that continent got them. But they knew that those without Christ are lost, so they gave up their lives and they went. That's why women Micah are in Cambodia. That's why Arthur and Tammy are in Tanzania. That's why it's a brilliant idea if you manage to get along to the CMS conference if you can. We need to take a leaf from the, the advice to his clergy that the British, sorry, the, the South African bishop, um, Frank Retief, gave to his clergy. He said, organize your diaries around this statement. People without Christ go to hell. Well, that'd give you focus when you try and work out how to spend your week. 
Now, we might balk at this. We might think, hang on, no, God is a God of love. Can't you remember what Jesus said? John 3.16, isn't it clear enough? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Yeah, just keep going with the verse. It's those who believe in him who will not perish. Did you pick up what the default was? The default assumption of that verse? That the world is perishing unless you believe in the name of the son whom God has sent to be savior. Well, if we're still not persuaded, just drop down two verses, John 3, 18. Jesus is very explicit. Whoever believes in God's son is not condemned, praise God. But what's the status of those who don't? Well, whoever does not believe stands condemned already. It's very clear. And if we think otherwise, we have an issue with what Jesus has said. According to Jesus, you see, being condemned already, perishing, that's the default, which only belief in the Son can alter. Now, so what are we saying? Are we saying that God's unresponsive and uncaring to those who happen not to have been told about Jesus? No, we're not saying that. God is not a brick wall to those who call out to him in prayer. He hears their prayers and he sends someone then to explain the gospel to them. He does it in this story, doesn't he? Cornelius prayed. God heard. God miraculously sent Peter. Peter told Cornelius and his family about Jesus and they were saved. God is not deaf to those who seek him. You know, missiologists have many such stories of people around the world who have cried out to God and God has answered them by sending a missionary who then tell them of Christ. Uh, this book I've got is just full of them. Um, here's one told by an Australian missionary, Richard McClellan, not Mitch, Richard McClelland, but maybe Richard, God's calling you to great things, you know. <laughs> um, he, he was a graduate of Sydney Missionary Bible College. Um, there he is, young chap. That's him when he's older, white hair. But um, he went to the Sudan and he brought the gospel to unreached people groups in the 1950s. And he tells a story, not of um, himself, but of this guy over here, a Sudanese evangelist named Laliso. Very courageous man who one day set out to reach an unreached tribe in the Sudan, the Goibi people, right? Now, they lived a long way away. The journey was difficult. He was detained by police at the border who wanted to be bribed. He didn't bribe them, so they detained him for hours. That was dangerous because when they let him go, the sun was setting. That meant that he had to hurry through the bushland to escape the numerous leopards which were around. <laughs> okay. Then as he was hurrying along in the dark, the bank of the river he was walking on gave way and he landed cut and bruised at the bottom. The banks were steep, he couldn't get out, so he walked, worked his way upstream until he saw lights from a nearby village. When he came to the village, he found that he was eagerly welcomed. They had been waiting for a fair-skinned messenger. He was a lot lighter in skin color than the very dark people that he, he, he went to. They were waiting for a fair-skinned messenger who'd come out of the river, but did he have the gold leaves? Now, he was fairer skinned than they, he'd come out of the river, but what were the gold leaves? The villagers crowded into a hut, their medicine man, the witch doctor, kept opening and shutting his hands, asking for the gold leaves. Laliso was stumped, he prayed for wisdom to know what to say, thankfully he didn't do a Peter and say, you know, tell me why I'm here, or I can't talk to you, you're different to me. 
He thought this was a great opportunity to speak of Jesus, and so he unwrapped his Bible. Strangely, he found it dry. And then the people started clapping their hands. The, the gold leaves have come. And then he looked down and realized the edges of his Bible were embossed with gold. They had no paper in this village. This is what they called leaves, you know, the, they called paper leaves. The gold leaves were the truth that would show them the way to life. And he said, we, uh, the witch doctor said, we have waited so long, but now you've come. Um, the man explained, a long time ago, his father, also a witch doctor, had called out to the creator and had been told in a vision that one day a fair man would come out of the water with gold leaves and the gold leaves were the truth and would show him the way to life. He says, we've waited so long. And then Lilisso told Richard McClellan, who sounds like that guy, said, in the next year, scores of people believed the gospel of Christ. The witch doctor renounced Satan and turned to Christ. Churches were started in many villages because of this. Dozens of new believers were baptized and then other evangelists came to help in the work because it was so fruitful. They weren't accepted by God in the sense that they were saved and forgiven by God until they'd heard the gospel and they trusted in Jesus, but they were accepted by God in this sense, that God was accepting of their prayers, that God said the gospel is for them, so I'll hear their prayers and send someone to them, a messenger who will explain. Two questions, who is in our net? Who are the respectable people we know who need to trust in Jesus? Father in heaven, thank you for the clarity that the book of Acts gives. Thank you that it challenges and rebukes us and teaches us and corrects us. Our great God, thank you that you accept all people who turn to you and believe in Jesus. And because you accept all people like that, may we accept all people like that. And please keep opening our eyes to our scruples because we do not want to diminish the great work of the gospel. And thank you for the boldness that this clarity gives us and we pray that we would be more bold and please help us to see um, the status of the unreached before you with a great deal more seriousness than what we tend to. In Jesus' name, amen.